The following message was given to the young adult group at the North Church. More information can be found at thenorthchurch.com slash young-adults. One of the things that encourages me as an elder at this church is when I see God doing similar things in different places, um, shepherding people in the same way. And one of the things that was encouraging for me is as I was sitting in the sermon, jotting down things, uh, the topic that Jake and Daniel wanted me to talk about was pretty much the main point of this week's sermon. Um, if you, I just cropped that right off the live stream. <laughs> so it's not like the best picture, but uh, anyway, if you were there, you'd recognize um, Nick Whitehead, our director for global outreach, uh, memorized this psalm and said it with exuberance. Um, oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, he is to be feared above all gods. And I didn't bring my notes with me, actually they're probably in my bag, but I wrote down several different phrases about how, that he was talking about from this psalm, about how what we know about God is supposed to affect our hearts and move out into life, in what we talk about, what we do, where we go. And that's exactly what Jake and Daniel wanted us to look at. We don't want to just have a head religion, but we, we, we need to use our brains. We want to have head and heart. And I changed the title that was sent out in the email a week or two ago, added a little word supernatural. Because um, it's, not, it's not something that humans can do on their own. What, what, the thought behind the 12-inch journey is that it moves from head to heart. I don't know, maybe you're taller than I am, and maybe it's 14 inches, maybe it's a little bit longer, but if you held the ruler up here and scrunched down a little bit, it would be a 12-inch journey, okay? So that's what we're talking about tonight, and in any talk, anything these days, any discussion, you should ask people, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by head? What do you mean by heart? Uh, we'll find out a little more about that 12-inch supernatural journey, but... What do you mean by that? These are not taken from anywhere great. These were made up on the fly, so you can read with me, tweak them as you want to, just to give you an idea of where I'm coming from. Head is using our minds to pursue a right understanding and knowledge. What I mean by knowledge is biblical. Like, it's not just I know about God as a subject, but I can use my mind to know him as a person, um, to know knowledge of God and his ways and what he has revealed both through nature and primarily scripture, through various activities like reading, listening, meditating, studying, and discussing. So you can be blown away just by studying the galaxies, and you can be blown away by studying books of the Bible with our minds. So what's heart? Responding in the fear of God to what he continues to reveal. So as he reveals more of the scriptures, as he reveals more of himself, about himself and responding with humility, trust, rejoicing, trembling, thanksgiving, worship, witness, and so many other things. So it's understanding, pursuing a right knowledge of who God is, and then it's responding rightly from the heart. So that's what we're after. And uh, maybe before we move on to four points, before we move on to point two, 
Let me pray for us in that. We need him to supernaturally help us grow in this. Father, um, we are in desperate need of you. Every time we open up your word, we need your help to quicken our minds, to help us behold wonderful things in your law. And we want to use our minds, and we want you to go after our hearts. Would you please do that tonight? Would you make your word be at work in the ways that you would have it be at work? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, before I move on, I also I said it's going to be interactive. You need to talk to the person next to you. If this was a pendulum, do you trend more towards heart or head? Just And you can answer that in all sorts of various ways. Uh, do you tend more towards heart or head? What do you think? Tell somebody next to you. So the hypothesis is that he's after both. And so you can think about, oh, well, where would the Lord want to be after my head or heart tonight as we look in the scriptures? You can open up your Bibles to Luke 18. This, this, this scripture will be on the screen, too, if, if that's helpful for you. But you can open up your Bibles to Luke 18, and we're going to kind of do a quick overview of this. But I want to point this out. Nope, the irony is not lost on me. We'll do a lot of mind work. We're also aiming for the heart. And hopefully at the end we'll get really practical. Give you some tools to take away. So I think it's helpful with Luke um, to, at least in this section, probably everywhere, to kind of get the wider context for what he's doing. He doesn't lump things together necessarily like he has this journal as he's talking to people and doing this detailed research about the truth so that we can have confidence in the things that we've heard about Jesus. He wasn't like, okay, so give me a timetable. When did Jesus tell this parable? Because I want to assert it right at the time that he told it. He kind of lumps things together sometimes thematically. And in chapter 18, he kind of seems to go after our hearts in some different ways. So notice, starts right off in verse 1, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. I'm excited to look at this parable and some teaching from it with the young adult small group that I get to hang out with on Thursday night. But anyway, that's just for the, the inside those people who were a part of that. Anyway, it's about not losing heart. How many of us lose heart when we pray? So he tells a parable about that. Moving ahead, jump into the next section. This is a parable about pride, and ultimately I think it's a parable about hearts. You see two hearts, we won't look at it too closely. You can go back and look at this section on your own, but the Pharisee and the tax collector, maybe you're familiar with what Jesus told about that. The, the Pharisee is basically like, look at me. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. He talks about the Pharisee's heart, looking down, thank you that I'm not like this, that, or the other thing, and I don't do these things. But the, the tax collector had the opposite heart. And I think what he's trying to point to is this is what we should be. Our heart should be humble. Standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He was deeply aware of that, and this person went away justified because the one who humbles himself will be exalted. One more thing I think also has to do with hearts. They were bringing infants, here we go, good example, uh, to him, Jesus, that he might touch them. And the disciples saw it and they rebuked them. They are like, we don't have time for kids. No, thank you. They weren't valued in that society. But Jesus called to them saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them for such belongs to the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. It's the heart disposition of a child to come to God needy and reliant, and you're my only hope, and other good childlike things. 
All right. This is, that was a real-life parable with actual children and actual Jesus and actual rebuking and actual correcting. This is a second real-life parable, and this is where we're going to kind of drill in just a little bit. We're going to use our minds, um, and, and we're going to think about the second real-life parable about the ruler, sometimes called the rich young ruler. I'm not sure where the young part comes from, but he's rich, and uh, we're going to find that out in a second. Maybe he's young at all. I don't know. Probably not, because... Well, maybe it does. We'll see. Um, and a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So let's, let's compare this with a very similar account earlier in Luke 10, and it helps some things stand out. So the two different accounts, in Luke 10, 25, it says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Sounds pretty similar. Let's look carefully. A ruler and a lawyer. Those are different. It's probably a synagogue ruler. Uh, and a lawyer, but they probably were both experts in God's word. Next, notice that the top one does not give any motive. If you're reading along the Gospels, sometimes they'll clearly say, this person had this secret motive, not secret to Jesus, not secret to us because the narrator fills us in. But we're not told any motive for the guy that we're looking at. But we are told about it in chapter 10. He wanted to put him to the test. So he probably was sincere in his question. Notice the, the difference. The guy who wanted to put him to the test only called him teacher. Everybody knew he was a teacher. That was like his job. It's like walking up to the gas station attendant and saying, gas station attendant, I don't know your name, but anyway, teacher, good teacher, or lawyer, or whatever else. We might see somebody, good teacher. Notice he uses the word good. It's different. Finally, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Or what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Very similar. And scholars, um, such as this guy named Joseph, thinks that there was this category in their day that this phrase meant to, take, to partake of eternal salvation in the Messiah's kingdom. So that, like, how do we get into your kingdom and spend time with you? How do we spend time with the Messiah? How do we get into the kingdom and spend time with the Messiah? I'm not sure he's believes that Jesus is the Messiah, but that's what they were thinking. That's what's behind this question. Notice it's inherit, not earn, but anyway. But they wanted to know, how do we do that? And they really asked the good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Why do you think Jesus says that? This is rhetorical questions. I'm inviting you to engage with your mind with this text. Why does Jesus say that? There's a lot of questions. There's a lot of mystery in this text. It's kind of a fun one. Does the man need further humbling? Might be a question to consider. Jesus said to him, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Okay, why does Jesus go here? Why does he go to Exodus and Deuteronomy and start listing the commandments? With the other guy, he asks him just generically, well, what does the law say? And the guy says, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus, and that, Jesus is like, right, go and do it. And he's like, um, what, who's my neighbor? And that's where the, Luke 10 goes. But this is different. Why doesn't Jesus go to that? If he's after his heart, why doesn't he go there? Why doesn't he say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Why does he go to these commandments? Mystery. Remember, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God. So why does he go here? 
And he, that is the man, said, all of these I have kept from my youth. Okay? So if somebody's hanging out, just think to yourself, if you've hung out with Jesus in the Gospels before, read them yourselves, listened to sermons on them, think back over those commandments. Could you say that you've kept them from your youth? Do not commit adultery. Whoever looks at a woman with a lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. Do not murder. He who hates his whatever, whoever, is guilty of murder. Do not steal. We can go to Romans 2 and, and realize that when we're stealing glory from God or looking down on others, there's, we, we do steal. Do not bear false witness. We could just talk to James for a little while if we want to wonder about our tongues being pure. He pretty much uh, humbles us, at least somewhat. And how many of us have stretched the truth or told lies or covered things up? Honor your father and mother. I was a teenager a while ago. I'm guessing some of you were. Um, I work with a lot of teenagers. That is a big one. That's hard. Um, honor your father and mother. All of these I have kept from my youth. You need to know, he probably is thinking in line with the Jewish teachers of his day. Notice what Paul said in his pre-conversion little thing in Philippians 3. He says, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. That's part of the things he threw in the trash heap um, to say that I'm going after pursuit of Christ, but he's probably thinking along. So there's some things in his mind that needs to be changed, but probably according to the law, he's kept them all since his youth. How would you respond? How would you respond? When I was a high schooler and I was interacting with my youth leader about God and why I was going to go to heaven, my answer was, well, I'm a good person. And she responded, well, that's not what... That's not what Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says. Um, it's just not true. How would you respond if you were Jesus? How does he respond? A little bit of a curveball. When Jesus heard this, his answer, he said to him, one thing you still lack. So I think the biggest mystery of this text is, what is he lacking? What is he missing? What does he need? What do you think it is? What did he already have that was not enough? Let's start by crossing things off the list. What did he already have that was not enough? Spiritual leadership. Remember I said he was a ruler, probably a ruler of the synagogue. Now, knowing the scriptures, he's probably a master. He was a Jedi master in the scriptures, probably. <laughs> Financial success. He's a rich guy. Seeking to talk with Jesus. He's like in the right place with the right guy. Positive words about Jesus. He doesn't just call him teacher, he calls him good teacher. Asking Jesus good questions like, can you ask a better question than like, how do I get eternal life? How do I spend eternity with the Messiah in his kingdom? And then being a good person, he is a good guy. He didn't break any of the commandments since his youth, at least what he was thinking. When Jesus heard this, he said, one thing you still lack, and then he goes here. Interesting. Sell all you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Okay. So just work with the person next to you and talk with them about what in here, what, what are the commands in there, and 
What's he calling him to do? Like, how big is that? What, what is he commanding? There's several commands in here. Pick them out, starting in, in between the quotes. Talk to the person next to you. Which ones can you identify? And like, what does that exactly mean? What would that mean for this fairly wealthy guy? Go for it. Talk for 20 seconds. So before we jump on this guy's case and throw him overboard, because like, dude, just keep with the program. Come on. Garage sale. Here we go. Um, just think about this. Jesus is close to Jerusalem. He's just around the corner from Jericho. He has set his face like flint. I believe right after this is the third time in Luke's gospel that he says that he's going to go there and die. Selling all that you have. Can you imagine doing that? Can you imagine selling everything you have, having nothing after you gave it all away? You might have some questions start coming to mind, like, Jesus, I live in Minnesota. It's fall, winter's coming. Um, so there's definitely this trust. He's gonna join this homeless guy and follow him. But then again, we're gonna hear in just a couple verses, the disciples did that. They left everything. They left their nets. They left their fishing companions. They left their tax trade or whatever else. And they followed Jesus. Following Jesus is radical. It's not just like follow the leader, like a bunch of preschoolers. It's like, I'm, I'm sacrificing everything and you're my only hope. So you guys oops, have to log back into my remote. Um, here's, here's some of the things. Sell, distribute. It, it's implied that you will have treasures in heaven. It's implied like, believe me. Believe what I have to say to you about heaven, that if you sell everything, there's going to be heaven, there's going to be treasures for you in heaven, and then come follow me. So, something for us to consider. Is he, is, maybe I should say his lacking, uh, having done these things. Um, so, is he lacking having done these things, is what I was supposed to say. So is it like, you haven't sold yet, you haven't distributed, you haven't followed, and you're not believing me about these things, is that what he's lacking? Or are these commands intended to help him see what he's lacking? Is this the end, or the means to the end? Is this the ladder to the slide, or is this coming out the other end of the slide? But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Sad, a guy who doesn't lack many material things. Jesus wants to help him see he's lacking something. What does he lack? He would have a lot to sell. It might be hard work, I don't know. Maybe it's like Elon Musk, that would be hard work. Like, I gotta sell all my investments and all the money that I made from those investments while I'm selling them, it'd be hard. Divest yourself of everything and give it away. What did he lack? Compare his response to Psalm 73. Um, 73 is a psalm about a guy who looks out his window and sees the wicked prospering. And he sees him, he looks at himself in the mirror and in his life circumstances he says, why am I suffering? They never have any trouble and I'm filled with trouble. Is God still here? Is God real? When I look at life, I'm a little bit disillusioned. Here's other things and other questions 
Compare this guy to what the author of Psalm 73 says about himself and what he was thinking. He says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. You ever talk to God that way? That's in the Psalms. He's saying, God, I was like a beast towards you. Have you talked to a friend that way? I was really a beast or a jerk or whatever. He's talking to God that way. When his mind realizes, when he goes into the house of God, he starts to see life rightly. He says, he repents, and then he says this. And even though I was a beast, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You haven't left me. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will receive me to glory. And then he kind of really gets pointed, and the comparison becomes pretty stark. Who have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. So his mind was focused on earthly things, earthly success, seeing the wicked prospering, and God invites him into his presence, changes the way he thinks, and this is where he goes. There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I can't hold myself together. I can't figure it out right. You are my strength, God. So after this sad reaction, Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, says to a wider group of people, maybe he's there to overhear, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. You know, Luke realizes he intends to write to people who have wealth. And we need to know, as far as the world goes, we have a lot of wealth. So he not only wants to go after our hearts here, he wants to even ask us about how we think about our things. How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. We've heard this before, but it's good to think about it. For It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Okay, this is a painting, but just get in your mind a camel again. Once again, just get in your mind a camel. And now get in your mind a needle. Okay? That's pretty magnified, all right, in order to get it up there on the screen. Okay, um, you guys are smart. If, if you were given the task, as if there was this big nationwide contest, kind of like there is for reading those scrolls, whatever that is, um, to get a camel, an actual camel, through the eye of a needle without adjusting the size of the needle or the size of the camel, what would you do? I don't know. Um, what's the point? The point is, it's impossible. That's what he's going to say in verse 26. But notice, it is easier to get a real-life camel through the eye of a real-life needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Right there, it says it's impossible. But he said, oh, um, those who heard it said, then who can be saved? That shouldn't be great. But those who heard it said, then who can be saved? They probably had this idea in their mind that the rich people were more blessed by God and therefore more likely to be saved. I'm not quite sure, but regardless. But he said, what is impossible with man, okay? Go back up two verses. What's impossible with man is basically salvation. 
What is impossible with man is possible with God. So what is possible with God? To be saved. To be saved. What was he lacking? See and compare the next rich man in Luke 9, 1 through 10, where Jesus says, today's salvation has come to his house. We're not really going to look there. You can look at this on your own. But it's really cool to look at the rich man who went away sad and the rejoicing little guy who climbed the sycamore tree. I know you're probably pretty familiar with that little song. Maybe you sang it if you're a young person in church. Um, Zacchaeus was a little man. Uh, anyway, the two rich men, it says right away at the beginning of the Luke 19, verse 2, that he was very rich. Chief tax collector, like the king of tax collectors, and he would siphon stuff off. We see this radically different reality of getting rid of possessions, of following God's law. Um, and when Jesus looks at the whole thing, he says salvation has come to his house. And even if you compare what Jesus said, um, he's saying this is not working for this rich guy in our text. And for Zacchaeus, salvation has come to your house. How does that work? Well, it wasn't because Zacchaeus was some better guy. Um, he wasn't. And nobody who's saved is any better than anybody else. The Lord acts for his own sake, for his holy name. He does something within the heart of people within salvation. In verse 24 of Ezekiel 36, he says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all countries and bring you into your own land. It's an exiled people and they need to be brought back. It's really cool. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from your idols I will cleanse you. This man, this young, this rich guy had idols and he needed to be cleansed from them and he needed a deeper work and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in with you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you cause you to walk on my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. If you compare this text to those two guys, what you see is what this man lacked was this heart operation, this cleansing, this sprinkling, this causing to walk in my ways. Because when you walk into Zacchaeus, he starts spilling out these things that he's going to do, and they're right from the law. He's like, I'm going to give away, uh, I'm going to return, you can look it up, it's in like verse 8 or 9, I'm going to pay back. If I've wronged anyone, I'm going to pay them back fourfold. Where do you figure that out? Maybe he heard people talking about the law or restitution. That's what God called him to do. He had this miracle at work in him. This is the final section of this little parable, and I think it's helpful because um, it, it gets us back to wondering, like, do I trust Jesus for those things? And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Luke wants us to, do I trust God? Do I trust him to provide for me? That's been something I've been wrestling with this last week. Am I trusting God? Am I trusting God to be generous? Is there supernatural evidence of this kind of thinking in your life, of this kind of action, of this kind of trusting in your life? 
So the Lord is after our hearts. Two more questions. One, one final biblical question, and then we want to get very practical. Why is the heart so important? Well, I've been spending a lot of time in this verse with our high school students the last five or so weeks. Um, it's the end of, it's the beginning of First Timothy. He's talking about sound doctrine, which means healthy teaching. And he says sound doctrine is defined by things. It goes along the line with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. Do you know what the word blessed means? It does not mean worshipped, praised, or honored in this context. It's a different Greek word. What it means is happy. God is infinitely happy. God does not just think about his glories. He rejoices in them. So a key reason why we need to be people who trust in that in the gospel of Jesus Christ is that he calls us to follow his example of being infinitely happy. God's glory consists much in the fact that he is happy beyond our wildest imagination. If you just let that rumble around in your brain a little bit. God is happier than our wildest imagination. Do you think of God that way? He's not glum, he's not morose, he's not gloomy, he's not dour or moody or sour or grim. He is glad, he is the glad and happy God. He is not disappointed in being what he is. He is like thrilled at being God. Oh, here we go. God's heart is thrilled about God. Do you think that way? He also commands you to be thrilled about God. It's in the Bible. Let's see if you can come up with anything. Here's two places. Rejoice in the Lord. That's a command. That's an ongoing command. It's not just like one Sunday in September. You can fill this command. No, it's an ongoing command to rejoice in the Lord, both in the Psalms and in Philippians. The, the continuous one is in Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. We're called to be a people of heart, and we're called to be rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. He also brought it up in chapter 3. We're supposed to rejoice in who he is and what he's done and be glad in that. That takes a little work. So let me give you a couple resources. Um, Mark Jones has written a couple articles on Desiring God. And one of them is God invites you to his happiness. If you like kind of like a baseline on God being a happy God and how he wants to invite his people into that, you can take a peek at that article. Um, but how do we grow in this? Back there, God invites you into his happiness. How do we grow in this? Well, did somebody get that? Did you get that book? Oh, that's great. Um, <laughs> if you didn't get the book, yes, of course you can buy it, but you can also download the PDF for free. Come on. Um, when I Don't Desire God is a really helpful book on how to fight for joy. And in it, we meet this old guy. Uh, anybody know who that old guy is? George Mueller. What do they call the two little dots above the U? Anybody know? Uh, umlaut. Okay. He's got an umlaut, so he's extra cool. Um, so I'm going to give you just a couple things that have helped me recently. It was helpful for me to read this, and it's helpful for me to do something. I'm going to read you. So we're going to like buckle up a little bit. We're going to read a little history. But these are quotes from this guy, George Mueller. Um, 
According to my judgment, the most important point to be attended to is this. Above all things, see to it that your souls are happy in the Lord. And this quote is all over the internet, but I'm going to quote some other things that are right from this book. That's why I mentioned that earlier. Um, other things may press upon you. Any, any, can you think of any things? What things press upon you? Like starting off the day, like, should I read my Bible today? Or life? Other things may press upon you. The Lord's work may be, have urgent claims upon your attention. So he's even talking to like people in ministry. Uh, but deliberately repeat. But I deliberately repeat. It is of supreme and paramount importance that you should seek above all things to have your soul truly happy in God himself. Day by day, seek to make this most important business the most important business of your life. So what does that mean? How do we do that? He gives us a few clues. In what, oh, he even asked that question. In what way shall we attain to this settled happiness of soul? How shall we learn to enjoy God? How shall we obtain such all-sufficient, soul-satisfying uh, portion in him as shall enable us to, go, to let go of things in the world as vain and worthless in comparison? So in some senses, he's saying, what would have helped the rich young ruler let go of things? I answer, this happiness is to be obtained through the study of the Holy Scriptures. God has therein revealed himself to us in the face of Jesus Christ. I don't have an umlau on my keyboard, I guess. But anyway, now I would give a few more hints to my younger fellow believers. He's like 70-some, so that's all of us, even me. Uh, to my younger fellow believers, as to the way in which to keep up spiritual enjoyment. It is absolutely needful that we should read regularly through the scriptures consecutively and not pick out here and there a chapter. If we do, we will remain spiritual dwarfs. The first four years of my conversion, I made no progress because I neglected the Bible. But when I regularly read on through the whole with reference to my own heart and soul, I directly made progress. If you, if you were to underline something with reference to my own heart and soul, he's, this last quote, he's going to talk about that. I saw the most important thing I had to do was to give myself to the reading of the Word of God and to meditating on it. That is the food of the inner man, not prayer. If you know George Mueller, he's pretty big in prayer too, but um, he's talking specifically about the Word right now. But the Word of God, and not simply reading the Word of God so that it only passes through our minds just as water runs through a pipe, but considering what we read pondering over it and applying it to our hearts. Cool. Um, something that last winter we created for our high school students uh, was a tool called Marble. And I'm going to just explain it to you really quick. But this has been something that was helpful when we created it. And then I stopped using it for a while and realized that as I'm journeying through the Bible. There are some parts that are a little bit more challenging than others, uh, and I needed to go back to this, and I shouldn't have never left it to begin with. But this is a specific way, and I have copies of it for all of you if you'd like to put them on the back. Um, I have copies for you because this is a way to help apply God's word to our hearts. And it has a few different things. Um, it's a tool for meeting relationally with God, it has six questions that you ask God as you read scripture. All of these are on the handout, so you don't need to 
writing down or anything, but just let me walk you through a little bit. Meaning, what is one truth in this passage that, that you, God, are intending to communicate? So I'm reading the Bible with God, and I'm asking him, what do you want to teach me from this? A, admire. How does this passage move me to marvel at who you are, what you've done, or how you have worked this truth in my life? What does this say about who you are? I was reading this morning about, I wish I would have written it down and put it in here, but it was, it was talking about God by his understanding spread out the heavens, which is pretty amazing to think about. He knows how like the gravitational works with all the planets and stuff like that. And then it says something like, you make lightning for the rain. That was just, that caught my attention. And like, sent lightning bolts down my heart. I don't know, it wasn't like, it was just sort of like, oh, cool, there we go. I can admire you for how you make lightning work. That's pretty cool. Reflect. You say your word acts like a mirror. I'm supposed to measure myself against what I see in it. How should I think, believe, feel, and act? Where do I fall short of your standards? Maybe you can think about some of those relational or heart texts, and maybe your heart falls short of that, or other things like that. V, do you sin rightly? How is falling short in that way a sin and offense against you? Super helpful to not just be like, I did something wrong. No, God, I did something against you. Finally, entreat. How does this passage call me to cry out to you for myself and for others? You probably know what entreat was, but sixth graders don't. So entreat is the fancy word for asking God for something with passion. Oh, sorry, one more. Live. You call me to obey you in faith. What are you calling me to believe or do in this passage? What truths or promises can I trust in as I obey in faith? We don't just come to get a to-do list from God. We come to find things that he wants us to do that we can trust him to work in us. You can say, Spirit, fill me. Help me. Help me trust you to live this out or obey this or do what you call me to do. Help me to trust you. Help me to lean into your promises or to your instruction in God's word. So that's that piece, which I'm going to give you. I also want to give you two other things. Maybe that's the tool that you need, but maybe you need a different, maybe you need to think about the word a little bit differently. So anyway, in these two things that I'm going to put back, I've given you um, the marble thing and then some explanation of it in the back. And then everybody can take one of these and just reflect with the Lord on where am I at as I look at your word. And the purpose of this would be great to talk about it with a friend. You can even chat about it tonight um, or talk about it in your small group or something like that. But take a look at it and figure out how am I doing in these areas so that I can figure out, God, what would you have me to do next? And this little survey thing or whatever connects with the sheet right next to it called Young Adults Rightly Handling the Word. I edited it a little bit because it used to say students. Um, but young adults rightly hitting the word, just a little bit of an introduction. And there's, this is sort of like a 10 steps towards growing in God's word. And you can kind of read through them and say, oh, God's given me grace in this, praise him, praise him, praise him. Whoa, okay, I think I need to work on that a little bit. Maybe I can lean into this and God can help me um, lean in and meet with him relationally or um, continue growing my understanding or read some books that are hard in the Bible or, or things that I've skipped or maybe I need to get on a different plan or there's all sorts of different things in here. 
So these are just specific helps for you with a little bit of coaching and ideas. And lastly, just like we heard from George, I would really encourage you to find an older person in the faith who could help you just think through, like maybe you're stuck or maybe you need help or maybe you have a friend. I know that there's some young adults who are on like a texting chain. They're all in the same Bible reading plan and they text each other every day about what they're reading about. And that helps them keep accountable because my buddies are waiting for me to be receiving a text or getting a text for them about what I'm reading in the Word. Do this in community. I think we can very much want to do an isolated life but I'd encourage you, if you're struggling to be in the Word, find somebody to help you. And if you could be helped by doing it in community, do it in community. Read the Bible along with somebody else. That was my last slide. Let me pray for us. Father, you desire for us to love you. The greatest command is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that fuels our ability to love our neighbor as ourself. Would you help us to run after you in the word? Would you fuel our affections for you? That we might worship in spirit and truth. Would you give us things to share so that we can encourage one another with these words? Would you help us to speak about your greatness, to have a heart full of you, happy in you, so that as we engage with coworkers, we have a little bit to overflow or to spill onto them. God, would you help us each um, as you seek after our hearts, whether we need to trust the gospel for the first time or whether we just need to keep trusting the gospel, keep repenting, keep looking back to you. Would you please seek after our hearts, draw us to you. May we be people pursue you with our minds, and it's very connected to our hearts. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the Young Adult Ministry at the North Church. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but do not charge for the copies or alter the content in any way without express written permission from the North Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at thenorthchurch.com slash young-adults.